Well, church, we are in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are studying this man named Solomon uh, who is coming home after being in his midlife and latter years someone who walked away from his relationship with the Lord. And this morning we're going to cover the issue of how to be happy or joyful or how to embrace life. There's a man named Cecil Rhodes who died at the age of 48. Uh, as a young man, at age 17, his parents, to help his health, sent him from England to South Africa. He went there, became a very well-known businessman. He cornered the diamond market in South Africa, and he became fabulously wealthy. In fact, they named a country after him, Rhodesia, which is now called Zimbabwe. Established the Rhodes Scholar in 1902 with some of his money that still brings international students to the University of Oxford to study various disciplines. But as you study his life, even though he was the son of an Anglican pastor, it's not clear that he had any understanding of the grace of Christ. So the story goes that he was in his last years of his life before he died at very a young age, was on a train with Bramwell Booth. Bramwell Booth is a son, was the son of William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. They preached the gospel. And as he was talking to Bramwell Booth, he, Booth noticed how depressed Rhodes was and asked him, are you a happy man? And Rhodes responded, happy? No. And then Booth told him the, that the influential world figure, this influential world figure, there was only one place to find true happiness, and that is, quote, at the feet of the crucified Savior, because it is only there we can be freed from our sins. Rhodes responded by pointing to the front of the carriage and the train, he said, as he pointed to William Booth, who was Bramwell Booth's father. William Booth was 25 years older than Rhodes. He said, I would give all that I possess to believe what that old man in that row believes, close quote. And so he recognized that a Christ follower should have happiness. I, I want you to be happy people. I want you to have joy. I want you to understand the basis for our happiness. And so as we, we study this passage this morning, we're going to see uh, that Solomon is addressing the issue of how to be happy as he comes home. As he comes back to, he, he can't live with the worldview that he's been living under. The worldview he's been living under is, is under the sun only living and has two facets we've talked about. The first facet is that the Solomon man, he married many foreign women and he worshiped many foreign gods and the wives and their gods turned his heart away from the living God, the Bible says, and he did evil. Not only did he worship them, he followed their dictates. He followed their, so, so he did evil in the sight of God. And so if you have many gods instead of one God, then you really can't define God. And if you can't define God as being truly God, then this true God hasn't given you a path to walk on. And so every man becomes his own interpreter of all of life. And so Solomon walked away from the worship of the Lord God, Jehovah, the true God, and he came to a place where you really can't define God. God is undefinable, therefore I am the one who must define him. And so he said, all is vanity. Uses that word over 30 times in this little book. All is like smoke or mist. All is like trying to catch the wind in your hand. 
And, and so his worldview was, was vanity. The, the, the second part of his worldview is he became a pursuer of pleasure. I've called it Epicureanism. He, he pursued pleasure in a socially acceptable fashion. And he gave his heart to pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. He pursued pleasure by trying to become a very wise man. And he tried, he studied and he studied and he studied and he said, you know, at the end of the life, at the end of the day, wisdom is vain. It's, it's, it's like trying to catch the wind. He gave himself to the pursuit of pleasure. He had 700 wives. And he built palaces and parks and gardens and became a wine connoisseur and a master musician or appreciation, uh, really a, a endower of the arts. And he said, at the end of the day, pleasure doesn't do it. And he gave his life to the notable pursuit of labor. And as he worked hard, he fretted saying, you know, I'm going to work hard, but at the end of my days, am I going to lose? Am I going to give my wealth to a loser son or grandson who will throw my wealth away? And he, and he said, and really, once I die, who's going to remember that I even lived? And so labor didn't satisfy him. And then he talked about accumulating wealth. In chapter 5, he says, you know, I, I had more wealth than anybody in the world, but that didn't satisfy. In fact, he said, I covet the life of a day laborer who works hard and goes to bed after eating a meal of beans and rice, and he sleeps well while I'm up all night fretting about what could happen to what I have. And so because of all of that, he says, life is vanity. He had left the faith, the life of faith, and because he left the life of faith, there was no path to follow. There was no place to really go. His father said in Psalm 119, verse 132, he says, Lord, I run in the path of your commands, for you have broadened my understanding, or you've enlarged my heart. I run in the path of your commands because you have enlarged my heart. And Solomon says, I have no, no satisfaction in this. So Solomon is coming home. He's coming home. Solomon had fulfilled the reality that was written 300 years later by a man named Jeremiah as he watched Judah fall. Jeremiah says in chapter 2, verse 11, he said, has a nation changed its gods even though there really aren't gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit them. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and be shocked, and be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've dug for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. So he says, you know, the living God says, I'm the fountain of living water, but yet my people have deserted me. Solomon has done that, and he's reaping the consequences of that, and he can't stand it. So he comes home. He's coming home. And last week we talked about Solomon coming home and how it's a call to liberating living when you give your life away. And today we're talking about how to embrace life or how to live a life of, of happiness. Just a very simple statement, a very simple sermon, three points, how to live happy. See, I want you guys to be happy. I want you to be joyful. I want you to live with happiness because as you live with happiness, it gives you the chance to tell people about Christ. I want you to live with happiness because as you live with happiness, it's an overflow of living a life of purpose and dignity. So I'm, I'm going to tell you this morning, this burnt out, recovering Epicurean, old, bitter man who's coming home, tells us how to live a life 
of happiness. So listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 7 to 10. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth, and walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Well, point number one is this. He said, if you're, if you're to live a life that is happy, you embrace the day the Lord has given you. Light is sweet. One translation says, light is sweet. How pleasant to see a new day dawning. When people live to be very old, let them rejoice in every day of life, but let them also remember there will be many days of darkness. Everything still to come is meaningless. We just heard of this wonderful testimony from this videotape that, that, that life is filled with, with, with pain. You know, it is. And, and there are messy people and messy places, and we live in a fallen world. And so that there are good days and bad days, but, but we understand that the living God watches over us. And, and so we can rejoice in the good and we can trust him in the difficult times. There are people here this morning going through very difficult times, but they're going through it because they trust the Lord. They, they, they say, in some way, Abba Father has this. And so if, if you're approaching life and you're an Epicurean, if you're approaching the day, the, the Epicurean says, man, the, the, the young person, the young Epicurean says, wow. More things to do, more experiences, more this, more that, more this, more that, more. You know, the young Solomon, there's more wine to taste and more women to have. And there are more parks to build. And there's more musicians to endow and listen to and, and, and on and on and on. But then you get to a point, and some of us, you've tasted this. You know people who do this. You, you get to the point in your life, you know, physically, it's probably 25 or 26 where you start going downhill, Really? Or your earning capacity reaches the, you hit a ceiling and, and, and you're what I call an old Epicurean. And recovering Epicurean, and in this regard, you operate on the law of diminishing returns. There's not that new thing out there that just, that just races your motor. The believer gets up in the morning and says, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be very glad in it. And so Solomon, listen, Solomon with a very limited perspective, he's a recovering Epicurean, lives, who lives on this side of the full revelation of, of Christ, says, embrace the day. Now, I'll read this. How much more should we embrace the day who live on the full revelation of God in the flesh? You see, the Old Testament saint looked forward to the coming Messiah, and the coming Messiah was, was, was prophesied through the sacrificial system and through the prophecies of the Old Testament prophets, and they were looking for the great day of the Messiah, and, and, and yet we live on the full revelation of the living God on this side of, of what he's done, and, and we know that God has come, and his name is Jesus, and died on the cross for our sins, and I think, how much more should we live life with joy and embrace Embrace the day, people. If you're a believer, embrace the day. It comes from Abba Father. I think of Psalm 103 that says, you know, bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. He forgives your sins. Just stop there. 
G.K. Chesterton, the great British wit from the 19th century, a giant intellect of a man, was asked, why did you become a Christian? He said, I wanted my sins to be forgiven. <laughs> he forgives your sins. He heals your diseases. He watches over you. He redeems your life from the pit. We do not walk in existential angst or nihilistic despair. He's redeemed our life from the pit. He, he crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies our years with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. Do you ever stop and say, God, you satisfy my life with good things. You give me this and this and this, and, 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 and you do that. And I just say to you, rejoice. Be thankful. Be happy. How do you approach the day? How do you approach the day? Well, if you're an Epicurean or who's operating on the law of diminishing returns, you get up and you turn on the internet. And you, as you read the internet, you read about special counsels, and you read about recounts in Georgia and Florida. And since it's Sunday, you read about the NFL. And if you're like me and your teams are the Cowboys and the Seahawks, this is a horrible year because both those teams stink. And then you look at the weather forecast and it's gonna be rainy and, and you can't get out. And then you say to yourself, well, maybe there's a new series on Netflix that I can watch and, uh, and spend my day on because it's just another plodding, unfolding day that has no purpose, no rhythm, no rhyme, no reason. You think about it, just, it's another day. Oh, well. Uh, well, if you're a Christian, let me say, if you're a Christian, listen, you hit the floor in the morning, and as you go to the bathroom to freshen up, you say, Abba Father, hallowed be your name. May your name be honored in the way I speak to people today, in the way I love my wife and my kids and my grandkids and my friends, in, in the way I, I use my time. May your name be hallowed in, in the way I look at life and the way I have, God, make me an empathetic, merciful person. Hallowed be your name. Because I have a great unifying principle in my life that, that, that the people without the living God do not have. And that is I want to glorify you and to honor you and to worship you and to enjoy you and, and to speak truth. I, I want to honor you. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my life, in the way, the way I live, the way I spend my money and my time. Bring your kingdom because your kingdom is a liberating kingdom. It's the kingdom of joy, and I want that. And you do not turn on the internet. You don't. You, you, you go to your, 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 your table, your corner, wherever you go, and you open the Bible. And, and you, 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 you have a Bible reading plan. Uh, this morning I read, I, I read a chapter out of the gospel. I read Luke 18 this morning. I'm reading Luke 18. I'm saying, wow. Luke 18, Jesus says, two men went up to the told a story. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. Now, the Pharisee stood up and he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm part of the A-team. I'm on the travel squad. I fast, I give my money to the poor, and you're lucky to have me around. And there was a tax collector that sat in the corner who beat his chest and would not even look up to heaven. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, that man went home right with God and not the Pharisee. 
And I said, God, thank you that you saved a man who is undeserving like me. I don't deserve it. And then later in the chapter, it's a great story, one of my favorite stories is, is, is a guy named Blind Bartimaeus. It's a true story. Blind Bartimaeus is sitting by the side of the road. He hears Jesus is coming down the road. And so he starts crying out, Jesus, son of Nazareth, or Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy upon me. And the people around him said, be quiet. Be quiet. God's curse is on you, basically, because you were born blind. Therefore, you did something wrong or your parents did something wrong. So God's curse, you're abandoned. You're a social outcast. You're a nothing person. And so he said, the Bible says he cried out all the louder, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, what do you want me to do? He says, Lord, I want to see. Boom. I just read and I said, God, thank you that you had mercy on a blind guy who couldn't do anything. Me. You save unlikely people. And so, so I, I read that and, and then, then you, 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 you get up and you go, you know, I, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, i.e. a real historical life. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the lower regions of the earth. He ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and one day he'll come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Bring it on. Bring it on. See, uh, there's some of our young guys have introduced me to a guy named Jocko Willink, and he's, in, he's fun. He's a retired Navy SEAL, 48, but he's, he's just, he's not a believer that I can tell, very motivated. He's always talking about get up and go for it and do this and do that, and he does wonderful book reviews. And I, I, he's a motivated guy, and he motivates me. I would love to meet him sometime. I really would. But I thought about how motivated he is and how he goes for it, and I thought his motivational basis and going for it and embracing life pales in comparison to what I have, what you have. So I say to you, embrace the day, cherish the day. If you're going to be happy, embrace the day as a gift from God. There's a quote in the bulletin from a book called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, and he says this. He says this. I think he's right. He said, if Christ is enthroned in your home and in your life, in your marriage, in your relationships, and, and, and you know we struggle, but we, we, we fall forward. If Christ is enthroned, there should be such an authenticity to love and, uh, that, that, that when you get to heaven, you'll say, you know, really, on the earth, I was living in the very far outskirts of heaven. Conversely, if you reject the reality of God and you are your own God and you do your own thing and you're an Epicurean, when you get to hell, which will be very bad, you're going to say, you know, during my life, I lived on the outskirts of hell. Now think about it. I think our home should be so... Um, I mean, I have to confess my sin to my wife. They're bad days. Don't misunderstand me. But our homes, generally speaking, if we know Jesus and want to honor Jesus, there should be laughter and joy and embrace in our homes. 
And like Luther said, every home should be a little church. So, so I was thinking about this. How about the Thanksgiving meal? So we're all going to have a Thanksgiving meal this Thursday or thereabouts. Uh, so if you're an Epicurean, okay, that's a, my favorite Thanksgiving dish, twice baked potatoes and sweet potato casserole without the marshmallows. Marshmallows are just a horrible food. No marshmallows. So twice baked potatoes and uh, potato casserole. So if you're an Epicurean, you go and you go to twice baked potatoes, they're burnt. Uncle Bob is here and he's drinking again. Aunt Gladys is here and she's got that grating laughter that makes you just, it makes your skin crawl. If you're an older, it's like, you know the, the, the term, like, like fingernails across a chalkboard. Now, if you're young, you have no idea what that is, but it's not good. It's not good. So, and then you got Cousin Phil, who's a braggart, who has very little to brag about and embellishes everything he says. And then he said, on top of that, no one understands or appreciates me. And, and I'm just thinking, once again, I think sometimes we put a weight of expectation on relationships the relationship was never meant to bear. Your wife or your husband or your kids are not Jesus. They're not going to authenticate you. They're going to make you whole. You're to serve them and care for them and embrace them. But how, how does a Christian enjoy Thanksgiving? Some of us are going to have these. Some of you are going to go to home. All of us are going to have meals with dysfunctional people. Some of you more dysfunctional than others. Okay, we're all dysfunctional. We're all sinners. So the, the, the believer goes, oh, there's no twice-baked potatoes here or sweet potato casserole. That's too bad. I'll try that mushroom and bean dish that I don't like, but I'll try to make it right this year. Um, oh, Uncle Bob is here. Yeah, he's drinking again. Aunt Gladys, oh, that laughter. Oof. Cousin Phil, once again, he's talking about his kids. But you know what? They're in process. And God saves unlikely people like he saved me. Lord, open their eyes. Let me be patient and kind. Let me seek to understand rather than be understood. See, you're a good theologian. You have good theology. So you're able to go to these meals and do well. If you're going to be happy, embrace. Embrace the day as a gift from God. Number two, if you're going to be happy, live with the reality of Abba Father. Verse 9. Now, as a very young Christian, I memorized, started memorizing verses. I was in a group called the Navigators. And one of the verses, probably one of the first 15 or 20 verses I memorized was Ecclesiastes 11, verse 9. I was a young guy, 20 years old or so. And I memorized it in the King James Version, which is what most of us had at that time. It goes like this. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth. And let thy heart cheer thee in the ways of thy youth. And walk in the sight of thine heart in the way of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. And, 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 for, and for years, I just misread that verse. I, I thought the verse was a, a th that do this or boom, judgment will fall. Do this or boom, judgment will fall. God is going to get you. God will bring you into judgment. Now, now I'm looking at, the, at this first. I'm saying, I, t I totally misunderstood it. This recovering Epicurean is saying, isn't it glorious that there is a living God who watches over us and who will call us to account? Isn't it wonderful this living God has given us a path to run on? 
I, I rejoice, once again, to run in the way of your commandments because you have broadened my heart. You've enlarged my heart. And so, so Solomon is rejoicing in the fact that there is an Abba Father that watches over us. I've totally missed the verse for years. And I was thinking about Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking about your heavenly Father. And, and he says, starting chapter 6, starting the verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Abba, Father. Isn't it great to have an Abba, Father, who watches over us? He, he says, he says uh, that, that, that when you give, give secretly so that what is done secretly will be rewarded by your Father. Your Father will reward you and says, when you pray, Know that your father who sees in secret will reward you. And he says this, that um, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive yours. And when you fast, understand this, that your father who is in secret, sees what is done in secret, will, will reward you openly. Yeah, so on and on and on. Your heavenly father. And I just thought, it is, I think what Solomon's saying, he's recovering now. Isn't it glorious? that you don't have to run with no path. Isn't it glorious that your life is not just one big, gigantic, cacophonic nothingness? Isn't it wonderful there's a God who watches over us? Isn't it wonderful that life is not an aimless drifting, but we can have an eternal perspective? Now, as Christmas approaches, as Christmas approaches, I... I, I, I usually enjoy about every third year, maybe second year, watching It's a Wonderful Life, even though it has nothing to do with Christmas or Christ, but I like Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed. Jimmy Stewart, I love Jimmy Stewart. But one thing I try to either read, a book, a little book I try to read, or a movie I try to watch is A Christmas Carol, every Christmas. It's, it's a one. Charles Dickens wrote it. Charles Dickens, if you study his life, we're not sure what he believed about the Christian faith. Some people said he was a committed Anglican and believer. Others say that he was a Unitarian. Others believe, say that he really wasn't a man of faith at all. So we don't know. But this, the Christmas carol is packed with truth. You know the story. There's a man named Ebenezer Scrooge who is a miser, from which we get the word miserable. And he's miserable, makes everybody around him miserable. His nephew works for him. And he pays his nephew nothing. He is a harsh, vindictive old man. And at one point in the book, his loyal nephew, Bob Cratchit, says this, my uncle's offenses carry their own punishment and I have nothing to say against him. Who suffers by his ill whims? Only Uncle Ebenezer. Godly perspective. So he's visited by the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future and shows what, excuse me, <coughs> what could happen and what has happened. And so Ebenezer awakes after the last visitation and he's thunderstruck with joy because he has uh, an opportunity to redeem the time. And so he becomes outlandish in his giving. And it says, after a radical transformation from his three visions, he walks through the street of London, freely distributing his wealth to the needy. He's giddy with delight. And he's giving not out of compulsion, but because his heart's been freed up. And the book closes with this statement. 
Some people laughed to see the alteration in Ebenezer Scrooge, but he let them laugh and little heeded them. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive ever possessed the knowledge. And I just like, he, he developed, um, <coughs> and he, <coughs> excuse me, an eternal perspective. Ebenezer Scrooge. Point number three, hopefully, is put vexation out of your heart. And I read that and I just started laughing. Here, here is the pot calling the kettle black. 30 sometimes Solomon says, you know, life is tough, it's difficult, it's, 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 it's like trying to grasp the wind, it's smoke, it's mist, uh, as compared to somebody who says, do what I do, but don't do what I say. And I thought about vexation. Vexation means to be overly worried. And I was reading Luke 12 where Jesus says this with such poignant statement. He, said, he says, Verse 22, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll wear, or what you'll put on. He says, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to your life? And then he says in verse 32, fear not, little flock, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And this says, be watchful for the day is coming. And time after time, Jesus says, don't be anxious, don't be so overwhelmed. We should be people who are concerned, but we should not let our anxiety take away our joy. That's what he's saying. Put vexation and sorrow away from you. Uh, I've thought, thought about some of our recent movies and how we live out our worldview and what we write. Um, I, just for example, last year, um, the movie's nominated for the Academy Award. The winner was The Shape of Water. It's a movie made about Baltimore in 1962, where a mute custodian falls in love with a captured humanoid amphibian. It's titled A Dark Romantic Fantasy, Picture of the Year. That's a long way from Braveheart and Cherries of Fire and Rocky. Let me tell you some of the other movies nominated. Call Me By Your Name, about the awakening of a young man and his homosexual desires. Next, Get Out. It's an American horror film about dysfunctional families and their response to interracial dating. Next is Lady Bird. It's about a broken family and the pain, especially the brokenness between a mom and her daughter who wants to study on the East Coast and she lives on the West Coast. I mean, I've seen these movies. I'm just telling you, this is... The next nominated movie was Phantom Thread, starring Daniel Day-Lewis, who's the best actor of our generation, I think. Incredibly gifted actor. I didn't see the movie. It's about a fashion designer with an obsessive compulsive disorder uh, and is haunted by the death of his mother who stitches hidden messages in the linings of dresses and it ends with a poisoned omelet. I, I'm just, I'm not gonna pay nine and a half bucks to see that. Don't call me weird. Uh, the, the next movie is Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. It's about rape, murder, suicide, unsolved rape and murder and, and, and mayhem. Uh, once again, I, I, I don't think, the, the two movies I did see that were nominated were The Darkest Hour about Winston Churchill, which was great, and Dunkirk, which was fasc fascinating. Last year, the Academy Award was Moonlight, a coming-of-age film that was billed as a truly LGBTQ movie. And I, I, 
I, I think about that. Vexation, vexation, vexation. So, so these are brilliant, gifted people. Brilliant people. But, but th their worldview is there is no pattern, there's no reason, there's no track to run on, and there is despair and anguish and nihilism, and it's just bad. It's bad. It's, there's dysfunction and horror and brokenness everywhere, and, and it's reflected in, in these movies. And then you have the other extreme. I hate to admit this, but I will. We, we like watching BBC, and I've been watching a lot of BBC murder mysteries, and they're great. But my wife looked at me a few weeks ago and said, I've had it. I'm tired of trying to solve murders. We need to watch something fun. So I went out and got some Hallmark movies. Um, other extreme. So I recently saw a movie entitled A Royal Christmas. Let me just give you the, the story real quickly. <laughs> okay, the story goes like this. There, there's a, a, a woman who's a seamstress who makes clothes, lives in southern Philadelphia with her widowed father, and she's a, a wonderful young woman. And her roommate is an incredibly attractive person, and they're friends, and it's, it, everything's happy. And so, you know, she makes her own clothes, you know. And she meets an international exchange student named Leo. And she and Leo begin dating, and they fall in love. And so he has to go home for Christmas, and he wants to go with her. And they sit in the coffee shop, and he says, I got something to tell you. I haven't told you till now, but, but my, my full name is eight names. And I am a, 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 a prince in a royal kingdom in Europe that you've never heard of. And, um, and he shows a picture of himself on a cell phone. He's got his robes on and his medals. And she says, really, are you kidding me? He says, no, it's true. So they fly to this royal kingdom, get out in this uh, a palace with 114 rooms and guards and coaches and fabulous wealth. But there's a wicked mother who doesn't want her, him to marry a commoner from Philadelphia, which as you know, Philadelphia is about as common as you can get in America. So, so a commoner from Philadelphia, and, and so while she wins the hearts of all the servants, and she's wonderful, and she introduces children to a baroness, and the baroness adopts an orphan child, it's, it's Hallmark. Uh, the, the mother doesn't like her, and so the prince asks her to, 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 to marry him, and she says, really, I don't think so. I don't think I fit in here, and I thought, give me a break. You're turning down a good-looking guy with all the money in the world because his mom is mean. Get over it, you know, that type of thing. And, and so she, she flies back to Philadelphia, and then the mother has a breakdown and sees her son loves her, and she's sorry for it. And so the mother says, gas up the jet. And they get in their private jet with the mother and the butler with whom she's beginning to get, become very friendly. And her son, they go to Philadelphia, and they all ask her to marry the son. And she says, yes, as it's being videotaped by her father on his phone outside of his dress shop. And it snows. <laughs> it always snows in Hallmark movies. It does. And, and they'll never film a movie in Miami because it's got to snow, you know. And so I watched that and I said to myself, I am brain dead. I'm, I'm, I'm brain dead. This is ridiculous. But I liked it. 
You know, that's what's sad, you know. But, but, so so, so you, you've, got, you've got Woody Allen over here. Woody Allen, I, I run from Woody Allen movies, but it's good for a quote. Woody Allen said, I'm not opposed to, being, to, to dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens, you know. So that's Woody Allen, who is the, the, the poster child for anguish and, 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 and despair. And you got Hallmark over here. We live here. We acknowledge there's anguish and there's hurt. We acknowledge there's brokenness and dysfunction. But we serve a God who's the God of hope. We serve the God who says that I'm going to take the, the broken, tattered parts of your life, and as you commit them to me, I'm going to make something beautiful out of them. We don't live in a mythical kingdom where you're pursued by a prince as you make dresses in southern Philadelphia. I mean, I guess it could happen. We live in the kingdom of the living, reigning Christ. And, 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 and therefore, we always have hope. Listen, live with joy. Embrace today. Be thankful we serve and live under an Abba Father who watches over us and loves us. And, and, be, and be a person who, who, who rejoices in the fact that, that, that God is and that, and that he takes the brokenness of our lives and he breathes life into it. Be an advertisement for the glory of the gospel by being happy, by being thankful. May God bless you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. And for the mercy of, of the cross. Thank you for this incredible little book called Ecclesiastes and how, the, how, how Solomon uh, walks away from you. His heart is seduced and he, years, he, he lives years and years in the backwash with no faith and opulence. Um, so, so thank you that he's coming home. And thank you that as he comes home, he's really instructing us. And, and we rejoice. And I pray that vexation will not overwhelm us. I pray that we would understand and know what's going on without being overwhelmed with anguish. Because we serve a great and loving God who watches over us. And thank you, Abba Father, that the God who knows and loves us, supports and cares for us. Thank you, precious Son that you bled on the cross for our sin. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you counsel and teach and exalt the name of Jesus and open the Bible to our understanding. You are glorious, and we thank you. So this week during Thanksgiving, may our hearts overflow with, with the theme of Thanksgiving and joy as we serve before you. And as we do that, may we have the chance to say a good word for the reality of the God who watches over us in Jesus' name. Amen.